Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. I was, um, I was reflecting this week uh, back to college days and to the experience of learning to cook. So this would be junior year of college. I lived off campus. Uh, some of you are Miami University students or alums. Uh, the apartments out by the Kroger uh, is where I lived. Living off campus meant that I was going to need to learn to cook for myself. And so my mom, and this will date me because this is pre-internet, uh, sent me to college armed with the Betty Crocker cookbook. Do you remember that one? Uh, plaid covered. Perhaps you have one at home now probably collecting dust because all recipes are online. Uh, but I was armed with the Betty Crocker cookbook and uh, I had a hankering uh, for chicken fried steak, which was odd because it wasn't something that we really cooked at home. Maybe that's why I had a hankering for it. Uh, and so I looked up the recipe. I went to the Kroger. I bought a steak, which was, you know, high cotton in those days. There goes the, the week's food budget. And uh, I followed the recipe. And what I, I don't remember how the steak tasted. I do remember the fire. <laughs> and running around looking for uh, where the smoke detector alarm was. And uh, once we got that sorted out, uh, I, I had to eat the steak because that was, you know, that was the food allowance for the week. And so I kind of this burned, nasty uh, steak that was not fried at all. Uh, there was nothing chicken about it other than that it was raw meat. And we, we choked it down and probably got sick, and then life went on. But when you're learning to cook, you have to commit to eat what you cook. Uh, you have to commit to learn from uh, your experiences. And I've been pondering that over the past 10 days because the preaching assignment from 1 Timothy 5, the verses which we just read, were due to be uh, preached last week according to the schedules that we make. Uh, God had a different schedule for us. Kim was in Mexico receiving some planned medical care. Uh, Annika ended up in the hospital um, receiving unplanned medical care. And uh, I left Tuesday morning staff meeting hastily to get her to the hospital, handed off the Ash Wednesday responsibilities to Chris, uh, who I understand stepped in ably. I hear we had a record crowd for Ash Wednesday. Uh, I continued, continued my streak of missing it. Uh, it's not, you know, not by design. Um, but, uh, uh, and then Steve uh, Resch, who's a friend of mine from Presbytery, knew that Kim was gone, so he called uh, to see how Kim was doing. And he happened to catch me in one of those little ER triage rooms, and I mentioned where I was, and he... Uh, asked if he could step in 
and preach last Sunday, which uh, was a, a great blessing to me during the week, and I think was a blessing to us uh, last Sunday morning. Uh, and so both Chris's and Steve's work were a great help to me during that unplanned week. But on Monday, when the week was just going to be normally awkward, um, I had started preparing First Thessalonians five sixteen to twenty two, and I found myself really for, for the rest of the week. And um, for all of this week, kind of rehearsing these verses in my mind. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray without ceasing. So lots of prayer the last two weeks, lots of prayer by me and lots of prayer for us and much appreciated. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, this felt more difficult, but there were lots of circumstances to give uh, thanks for, for good ER care, for good outcomes on tests, for bad things. There were many kindnesses that our family received, notes, cards, meals. We experienced those things, so, so give thanks for those things. But rejoice always? I struggled with that one. I'm going to do a little bit of an experiment here. I hope you're comfortable with us. This will push our Presbyterian envelope a little bit. But play my game. Uh, it will be helpful. I want you to raise your hand if you have ever come to Sunday morning and didn't feel like going to church, not because you didn't want to go to church, but because of the joy part. You just didn't have the joy. You didn't feel joyful. Is that ever you? Some of you, it's not you. That's good. You, you either have had great lives or you're not playing my game. <laughs> it's okay either way. Uh, but rejoice always. And I told the Sunday school class that I've been teaching last week that I just did not feel my usual happy self. Um, and I think I'm still rebounding emotionally because there were some moments, not so much this past week, but the week before, where I just really felt like I was at an emotional bottom. I mean, not just because of the immediate events, but what really felt like cumulative events uh, over what has been uh, a particularly, uh, I don't know what the right word that you can say in church is, uh, rough season, air quotes, um, and I'm not going to make the, the pulpit my confessional, but I am trying to have emotional integrity for every person who just raised their hands and for the people who thought that they might raise their hands someday, uh, because these are hard words. Rejoice always. And they're actually commands. How do we understand these words in a world where life can always be challenging and some days more challenging than you anticipated when you woke up. Now, uh, in my generation, we were familiar that Stephen Covey identified the seven habits of highly effective people. There are seven commands here uh, in the verses. Uh, you might think of these as seven commands for spiritually resilient Christians. Seven commands for spiritually resilient Christians. Paul is writing 
to a church of young believers. This is very early days in the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem into the Gentile world. These are some of the first Christians, uh, the Thessalonians, and they are getting this letter and uh, they are living as we've seen in our journey through this letter uh, they, they're experiencing big challenges. Their non-Christian neighbors were aggressively not thrilled about them being Christians. Uh, they were uh, learning that Christians had pledged new allegiance to a different king and uh, was not Caesar. And so this was upsetting and would be increasingly upsetting. Paul's prayer for them, which has shaped kind of our thesis for the series, was in uh, Chapter 3 and verse 12, the Lord uh, make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. His prayer was that these young Christians would be spiritually resilient until Jesus returns. And they were going to face challenges. We've seen some of those challenges. Some in the church had died. How should they understand that Jesus had not come back before some of their loved ones had passed away? Some needed to realign their sexual conduct with God's standards, not Thessalonican norms. Others needed to get jobs in order to be financially independent. Leaders needed to be honored. Discouraged needed to be encouraged to not quit. The weak needed cared for. And as a total group, the you all, these commands are plural. Uh, they needed to pursue spiritual resilience. And so Paul tells them really two things in these seven commands. First, that God has a will and a warning for Christians who would be spiritually resilient until the king returns. He has a will and a warning. And so I am going to preach this sermon to myself and uh, to you if you find that you are in need or anticipate someday being in need of spiritual resilience. You will. So you should all pay attention. First, God's will for resilient Christians. It's interesting uh, you know, we ponder God's will for many different things. Um, maybe this was more of a, a question that we pondered during college, but I remember sitting around having questions like, what is God's will for my life? Should I marry? Who should I marry? What is God's will for my life? What should I do with uh, my career as it is ahead of me? What, what should I do uh, with life? What's God's will for me, we, we ask these questions, and sometimes the answer to those questions is, well, you need to take spiritual truths, uh, pass them through a grid of wisdom, and make the best decision that you can, right? Uh, you need to um, use your time and talents in a job that helps you love your neighbor and be financially independent so that you can be a generous steward. General wisdom. But when God specifically tells us what his will is, we should perk up. Like, we should pay attention. I mean, this should be a little bit more bold-faced. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I, I might not be able to tell you what God's will is for your career path, but here are three things that I can tell you is God's will for us. 
Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Now, these are all kind of you plural commands. Our, our friends from the South would say these are y'all commands. Uh, our friends from Pittsburgh would say these are Yun's commands. Did I have that right? Yeah, all the Pittsburghers said amen. And uh, these, are, these are plural commands. These are for all of us. And what I have found helpful over the past 10 days and what I want you to talk away for a moment when you don't feel happy or when church rolls around on Sunday and it's been a bad week and you're like, I, I don't know if I want to go sing happy songs about Jesus. What I want you to see is this is not just a sequence of commands, rejoice and then pray and then give thanks. It's not just a series of commands, rejoice and also pray and also give thanks. But I think that this is an intersection of commands that interpret each other. This is an intersection of commands that comment on each other, that tell you how we are to do these things. In other words, they, they weave together like a rope. You know, a rope will have multiple cords in it. And, and I think these commands weave together to, to help us see God's will for spiritual resilience. Rejoice always does not always mean look on the bright side of life. Some of you want to whistle right now. The Monty Python fans want to whistle. Don't. It's church. Um, rejoice always does not mean always look on the bright side of life. The first place in Thessalonians where Paul describes Christian joy is in the context of suffering. Chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the, the setting is much affliction. The production by the Holy Spirit is joy. That the Holy Spirit gives uh, the Thessalonian Christians joy. It's what they experience in the gospel with much affliction. And it's interesting that, that Paul frequently, often connects Christian joy with Christian suffering. Our new member class just finished a, a crash course on Philippians. Many of you have been through that class. Uh, the entire letter of Philippians emerges in a hard circumstance. Paul is in prison. He's awaiting trial. Uh, the outcome of the trial might be his execution. While he's in prison, some people are preaching the gospel out of rivalry towards Paul. We don't even understand exactly what that is, but somehow they're looking to tear down Paul by preaching Jesus. Paul says that's okay as long as Jesus is preached. Epaphroditus has shown up from Philippi with money for Paul, gets sick along the way, and Paul worries about him. Two of the women leaders in the church in Philippi were feuding, Yodia and Syntyche. So there's a lot of challenge. And Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, in other words, your gentleness, your kindness, your courteousness, your tolerance, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. That, that there is a reality that Christians are brought into by the Lord, which produces joy, and it works when we hurt. This is the difference, and if you get nothing else out of this sermon, it's the difference between Christian joy 
and common happiness. That Christian joy works when life is not working. So think of the joy-producing realities that Paul has talked about in this book that we're studying. That we have a new relationship to God. Verse 1, God is our Father. He is not only God transcendent, but He's also God imminent. He is both. He, He is holy, righteous, good, wise, merciful, just. He's also Father. And you're brought into a relationship with God as Father. You have a new relationship to sin and final judgment, that you are delivered from the wrath to come. You have a new relationship to the death of Christian loved ones. And if you're a Christian, you have a new relationship to your own death. None of these realities depend on our circumstances or emotions. Let me say that again. None of those realities depend on our circumstances or how we feel about what is going on. Not all events produce joy. Christians of all people don't need to be fake happy. There there, there can be one place for one hour where you don't have to be fake happy. And that is in worship with other Christians. The worst circumstances cannot rob Christians of an identity that God has given you. If God has given you an identity as a child of the king, as a son or daughter of the Almighty, that nothing is going to happen in your life that is going to take that away from you. Nothing is going to show up on a, a, a medical exam that is going to rob you of confidence at the final judgment. I, I, on the day when the Lord returns, the stock market may be up or may be down. It won't at all affect the reunion that will happen between the Lord and the church. The, the, that there is nothing circumstantial that can rob Christians of joy that has been produced as an outcome of the gospel. Paul says rejoice. And then then he connects rejoicing, anxiety, prayer, and thanksgiving. Uh, He does this in, in Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything. Which is interesting because in Philippians, there's a whole lot to be anxious about. The the guy might be on his way to getting executed. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. I want you to see that this is exactly the same pattern that Paul adopts in Thessalonians. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Challenges, yes. Rejoice, pray. Praying intersects with rejoicing. It's the second of these three strands in our rope of resilience. Rejoice, pray, give thanks in all circumstances. Prayer and gratitude intersect with rejoicing so that in dark moments, joy is not forfeited. Uh, No less than John Calvin explains how this happens with great pastoral sensitivity. I think I have the quote for you, maybe, on the screen. Maybe not. There it is. So this is Calvin 
writing in the 16th century, but pastoring people who are like us, right? Because humans have common experience. Calvin says, doubts frequently obtrude themselves as to whether God cares for us. He also prescribes the remedy that by prayer we disburden our anxieties, as it were, into his bosom. As, however, we are unduly precipitate in our desires, he imposes a check upon them, that while we desire what we are in need of, we, are, we at the same time do not cease to give thanks. In other words, as I understand it, gratitude intersects with our praying and our rejoicing to comment on it, if you will, to inform it. So, so you're, you're going through your bad time. It might be a bad moment. It might be a bad season. And you're praying about it. Paul says it. Uh, Paul says, pray about it. Calvin says what Paul says. He's like, pray about it. But it's not that we prayerfully conjure up gratitude for the thing that we, makes us anxious. Uh, Christianity is not a mind game. Yeah, yes, it might be in the future that we see reason for gratitude for whatever is stressing us. But we might not. I mean, if you've read the book of Job, you know that Job does not find out all of the reasons why all of the challenges have come to him. So it's not that Paul is saying, look, you need to be resilient. So rejoice always, pray without season and give thanks. In other words, take, take your problem and twist it in a way that makes it good. I, I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying you, 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 you pray about your problem, but don't forget to give thanks. Because, because as you are also giving thanks, this comments on your problem. That if you are in the process of giving thanks for Christ, for his grace that is bigger than our circumstances, for all of the benefits which we've just re rehearsed, which do not depend on our circumstances, for a future free of what is burdening us now, that gratitude puts a joyful boundary on what is making us sad. It's like a three-stranded rope. So you can be exactly who you need to be with emotional integrity and also pray in a way that makes sense in light of God's bigger picture, if you will, in light of the bigger story. Which, which lets me say this, that rejoicing is resistance. Now, I didn't invent that phrase. I stole it from the dictionary, the Greek dictionary, so it's okay, because I know you're not going to go read the Greek dictionary. But, but, but they say, you know, Christian rejoicing is resistance in a broken world. That, that, that when you rejoice in Christ, you, you are resisting all of the messages of the darkness that, that come at you. And it's helpful to see that these are y'all commands, because sometimes we need to lean into others' rejoicing. And we need to have others be prayerful and thankful for us. This is a huge commendation of Christian community. I mean, last Sunday, I didn't want to come to church. And honestly, I could easily have gotten out of coming to church. Um, I could have just not come to church. And the Sunday school class would have been like, well, where's Dave? And after five minutes, they would have gone on and talked about other things. And I didn't have any responsibilities uh, uh, to, to be here. It was all covered by other people. I could have stayed home. Easy church skip day. Especially 
if worship is mostly just about being happy. But worship is not, Paul will tell you, Paul the Vertucci, not Paul the Apostle, but also Paul the Apostle. Uh, You know, worship where we declare God's worth is bigger and different than our emotional state. So, so I will tell you what I did. And I'm just telling you this for the people who raised your hands. Uh, I, I just sat there and I let you sing because I didn't feel like singing. I didn't want to sing, which was sad because the worship team crushed it. But I, I just let other people sing. And I just listened in. And, and I let them rejoice for me. I want you to tuck that away for the next time that you think that you shouldn't come to worship because you're sad. Or you shouldn't come to worship because you're in a hard spot. Because standing next to you and hearing you sing, letting you pray, you can conjure up hundreds of reasons for gratitude. Three commands for resilient Christians. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. So that is the will of God. There is also a warning for resilient Christians. Really, the the next commands warn us away from uh, resilience, uh, weakening activities, resistance sapping activities. God's warning for resilient Christians, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So don't quench the spirit generally. So this is, I think, a general command. Uh, We had a fire pit last Saturday evening in the gorgeous weather. uh, And when it was time, when the evening was over and it was time to put out the fire, uh, we put it out in the easiest way possible. We called 911. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. It's just a joke. Um, we snuffed out the flames. We, we put something over the top of the fire. We quenched it. The fire had been active. It had been roaring. We'd burned all of the dead sticks from the winter. And then we quenched the fire. Paul says, don't quench the spirit. The, the, the spirit has stirred up within you what you need to be resilient in the, the world. And there are lots of ways that we can quench the spirit generally. Well, as I've just alluded to, neglecting worship will quench the spirit. We need to be stirred up weekly in worshiping alongside of others. You need to come on the Sundays when you don't feel like singing. You need to access the basic tools that God gives the church, the ministry of the word, the sacraments and prayer. Don't quench the spirit neglecting community. You know, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians was that they would grow in love for one another. Community is important. My Monday night journey group talks about this. Usually at about this time of the year when summer break is right around the corner, we talk about how, at least in our journey group, we experience a summer slump because we're not together. We're not together every week. We miss being together. Uh, and, uh, And so you need to not neglect community. I think that we can neglect, uh, we can quench the spirit by neglecting mission. I mean, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians was that they would increase in love, not only for each other, but for the world. Not that they would fall in love with worldliness, but that they would love unbelievers. 
What does it mean for them to love unbelievers? Well, to share the gospel with unbelievers. You know, think about it. The, the Holy Spirit is active in the world. Every day, the Holy Spirit is making spiritually dead men and women, spiritually dead boys and girls, spiritually alive again. The, the, the Spirit is doing that. He is building the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. If you were to ask what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world today, one of the things that would be on the list is converting people. But who does the Holy Spirit mostly use to convert people? Other people. <laughs> so if, if we're not engaging in the things that love the world, if we're not stirring that up according to how the Spirit has gifted us, and He's given you gifts that are good for loving the world, it might be a gift of hospitality for inviting unbelievers into your home. You might have the gift of evangelism for sharing the gospel with someone else. You might have the gift of generosity to support the church financially. However the Spirit has gifted you, engaging in it missionally, keep stirring up what the Spirit has done. But if you quench it, if you stop, I mean, don't be surprised if you get less passionate about the gospel. I mean, if you get less passionate about the gospel if you don't share the gospel. It's interesting, sometimes, sometimes people will, well, well, we'll get to it in a moment. Teaser, little mini teaser. One, one way that we quench the Spirit is not battling sin at its entry point, which is temptation. We will sin. The Christian life is full of turning from sin and back to Jesus every day. Paul identifies the fight against sin as essential to Christians in 1 Thessalonians 4. Where he says, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, therefore, Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So if, if you're not engaged in pursuing holiness, you're probably engaged somehow in quenching the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's work in your life is to make you more and more holy. And if he's calling you to more and more holiness, and if you're not pursuing it, you're probably quenching his work. Elsewhere in Romans 8, the Spirit empowers us to fight sin. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We quench the Spirit. This is where I was going. Teaser revealed. We quench the Spirit when we don't deploy the talents, gifts, abilities, and passions He's given to us. Paul writes to Timothy, uh, his last letter in the New Testament, where Timothy has been uh, in ministry for quite a while at this point, actually. He says to Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In other words, even though he's been doing ministry for a while, he needs to keep stirring up what has been put in him for the doing of ministry. Here's the thing. Being a follower of Jesus is not just about input. It's not just about receiving. It's not just about consuming. Put word in. Put word in, put worship out. Put word in. Put service out. Put wisdom in. Put leading others out. I mean, 25 years of pastoring, 26 now, um, people will come to me and say, I'm just not growing as a Christian. It happens. We've all experienced it. And so, so we rehearse what their life is like. They're like, I mean, I, I come to worship. I'm in the Sunday night study. 
I'm in the Monday night study. I go to the Tuesday morning study. I go to the Thursday night study. Sometimes I make it to the Saturday morning study. Study, 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 study. Hey, I'm for it. But where are you serving? Where are you putting out? I mean, it, it, it's a lot of input. I read the Christian books. I listen to the Christian music. But it's like, uh, it's like uh, drinking a, a giant protein shake and going to the gym and watching other people to lift and expecting to get stronger. <laughs> I'm going to go carbo load and watch someone run a marathon. What's going to happen if you do that? You're going to look generally like me. <laughs> Being a consumer Christian is like going to the gym, watching people lift and wondering why you're not getting stronger. Don't quench the spirit by not using your talents, your time, your treasure missionally. And then don't quench the spirit and the word specifically. This is the final warning. Quenching the spirit includes quenching the spirit's work through the word, through word associated activity. You're like, well, wait, didn't you just tell me about all the studies? Yeah, I, I did. I think you'd take my point. Because Paul says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So what are the prophecies that we're not supposed to despise? Well, there's a lot of debate, actually, about what this means. The Thessalonians would have understood what was meant. We know that prophecies in the New Testament were distinct in the New Testament from the teaching of the apostles. The teaching of the apostles came with Christ's authority. Prophecies, Paul says, were useful. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Calvin, again, by the term prophecy, I do not understand the gift of foretelling the future, but the science of interpreting the scripture, so that a prophet is an interpreter of the will of of God. God's word delivered from the apostles was authoritative. Prophets delivered messages to the church that were more like, I think God wants you or us to do X, Y, or Z. And so, uh, so Paul, the apostle says to the Thessalonians, don't, don't despise prophecies, test them. What would you test them by? Well, you test them by the word. You, you, you test them by what the apostles had taught. You, you'd measure them by what is absolutely true. And so one significant difference between the first century uh, readers of this letter initially and us and Christians in later centuries is that the church has completed a long and detailed process of understanding that we have the New Testament that we're supposed to have. That, that what God wants us to know has been enshrined in canon, so to speak, so that uh, we should be word-centered people. What does this mean for us? That we would not quench the spirit by despising prophecies. Well, there is a strong connection in Thessalonians between the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the word. In verse 5 of the whole book, chapter 1, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then in chapter 2, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. In other words, you, you can't 
move away from being a word-centered Christian. If you move away from being a word-dependent Christian, if you don't sit under the preaching of the word, if you don't submit your life to the authority of the word, you should expect that the spirit will be quenched. You, You should expect that to happen. What the apostles preached was the word of God. The word of God is not passive information, but active and divine power. Don't despise the message of the word. Don't despise the power of the word. By the word, God tells us what he needs us to know about him, us, life, death, sin, grace, heaven, hell, salvation, damnation. Don't despise prophecy. Accepted. Accept the word. The Holy Spirit works through the word of God. Paul says that everything must be tested. Surely the Thessalonians needed to test prophecies by the word because the Spirit can't inspire us to action that contradicts what he has spoken. Tuck that away. You know I mean, you, 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 you might be in your small group and you might be with your Christian friends and you might be having those life questions. What is God's will for my life? What should I do with my, my life? And someone might say, well, I think God wants you to. Or I think God has this for you. There might be wisdom in that. Don't despise it, but test it. Test it according to the word. The, the spirit is not going to lead you into an action that contradicts what he has spoken in scripture. We, I, I think we, I mean, every church in every generation probably needs to be super savvy to this. But as the American church goes on into post-Christian America more and more and more and more, which means that more and more people will be converted to faith without the benefit of long church experience behind them, which means that there will be more and more young Christians, which is great. That's what we labor for. But as we labor in the direction of more and more young Christians, young Christians need to put themselves under the word. Test everything by the word. Don't quench the spirit generally. Don't quench the spirit and the word specifically. This is God's will and God's warning for resilient Christians. This is how he wants us to keep running and to keep maturing whether you're in the first lap of the Christian race or whether you are close to breaking the tape. This is God's will and his warning. Rejoice always. Pray continuously. Give thanks. Don't despise the word. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.